Good morning, church family. How are you? Great. It is good to see you. Hope you had a very Merry Christmas celebrating God coming to be with us in and through Christ. Um, gr- grateful that you are here this morning. So, hey, if you have a Bible, turn it open to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. So three twos in a row there, and you will find it. Luke chapter 2, we are going through a series called In Our Midst, where we are looking at the life of Jesus as he comes uh, to be God in our midst. And it's a pretty exciting thing. We're taking a look at the Gospel of Luke. Uh, before I get further, though, I just want to say uh, we want to welcome back into the morning gatherings the Sunday night church family. So let's welcome them. They're like... They're my people, like dear family. Uh, so we felt after four years of gathering really great things that happened and we just still felt like God was leading us to kind of merge back into gathering in the 9 and the 11. So anyways, welcome them back. Uh, if you haven't seen somebody for a long time, you can just be like, hey, were you at Sunday night or have you just been skipping church for a long time? What's the deal? So there you go. You can break the ice that way. Well, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke and Luke is one of those amazing stories. It's a two-volume story. It comes Luke and Acts. It drives me nuts that they put John in between them because they're really meant to be read together as one volume. But anyways, that's the way our Bibles are bound. So uh, Luke and Acts is this great two-volume narrative, and it has more about Jesus than really any of the other Gospels. There's more text, more narrative in Luke about Christ than Matthew, Mark, or John. Uh, not put together, but individually. And it's one of those, it's like Jesus, the extended version kind of things, right? So if you want to get the extended version of Christ and his life, take a look at Luke. It's pretty exciting. So um, anyways, we're going to be finding out all kinds of things about this person who brings God's salvation to us. And we want to know how to relate to him. And as we are on the hinge of one year to the next, we kind of at least in my life, it's, it's a time when I tend to reflect back and go, what did I miss this last year? What, ha- what went really well? And what do I want next year to look like? And, and so this morning, as we engage in Luke's story, we're going to find three examples, three different people as they interact and relate to God, particularly Christ. Um, we're going to look at their examples and, and, and learn from them. And I hope you'll grab something this morning that will be meaningful for how you'll walk into the new year as you pursue Christ as a Christ follower. And uh, and that's that's going to be great. So let's pray, and then we'll get right into the text. The plan for the morning is we're going to just go verse by verse through this section and look at what it has to say to our story. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you very much for your word, that you are a God who reveals himself. To us, so that we can know and relate to you. And we ask that during this time you would help us to not only know and relate to you, but to trust you and embrace what you have to say in our lives, to respond in faith and obedience. And we pray this for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. Amen. All right, let's jump right in. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, They brought him, that is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens a womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what the law of the Lord says, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay, super interesting start, right? (laughs) What's going on here? Like 12 days of Christmas? What's Anyway, so... um, Luke begins his story, he, uh, this, this section of the story, by moving from the shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem now to these saints and uh, now a prophet in the temple. And so this is a pretty exciting time. We move from kind of street people now to very pious people at the center of the Jewish world, the temple. And Luke begins by describing three ceremonies, three rituals according to the law that sets the scene. And you wouldn't necessarily grab that by looking at it because he rolls them all together in one. He says, a time came for their purification. According to the law in Leviticus chapter 12, when a woman gave birth to a boy, um, there was this seven-day period where she was considered unclean. 
Now, our first, as modern kind of people, our first reaction is that is just kind of chauvinistic, right? But if you think about a male-dominated society and think about what it would mean to protect a woman in that day and age, she's just had a baby, her body's vulnerable, there's like, right, you have issues, right? Anybody just like pop right back up to like... Doing, yeah, jazz your thighs the next day, right? No. So, anyway, so there's like this seven day period where they're considered unclean, and then 33 days after that where they're to stay home, right? And so it's this like kind of parameter that the law put around kind of protecting women in a sense to say, like, take it easy for a month or so, right? At least. And so our doctors tell us to do the same thing today. So that's this kind of loving interaction. So they're unclean for seven days, stay at home for 33. And then on the 40th day, they're to go make a sacrifice at the temple. All right. And so their purification really meant like Mary's purification, but she's bringing the family with her. And then it says this, every male who first opens a womb shall be called holy. What's that about? They're, they're doing something there. They're offering... Uh, this sacrifice for Jesus, who is the firstborn male in the family. And so this is a a rite or ceremony according to the law where when you have a firstborn male, you have to offer a redemption sacrifice for them. So this goes all the way back to Exodus. Remember when God's people were freed from slavery after 400 years in slavery to the Egyptians and all the firstborn males in Egypt went to Hawaii, right? No, they died, right? They were killed off, remember? And then what happened to the firstborn males in Israel? They had to make a sacrifice, right? To, to like, live. And so, anyways, this is this kind of thanks offering to God. It's a sacrifice of redemption for the firstborn. So this is all according to the law. But you don't have to bring your kid when you make this redemption of the firstborn sacrifice. You can leave them at home. Uh, so why do they bring Jesus to the temple? That's the third rite, the third uh, ritual that's going on here where you offer your child to the Lord for service. Okay, this goes back to 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2, where Hannah offers her son Samuel to the work and service of the Lord. And so it's this kind of three rituals rolled into one. And, it, and, and it, in this section, the law is fulfilled, all right, by the family of Jesus. That three times the law is mentioned in three verses And so Luke is showing the example of Mary and Joseph and he wants us to see that that Jesus' family are faithful Jews and they observe the law. The emphasis here is about Jesus coming to fulfill Israel's vocation under the law. He comes as an observant Jew in an observant family, even though during his ministry he's going to be accused of being a lawbreaker. And so Luke is helping us get that Jesus comes from a faithful family. Why does it matter so much for us to know this? Why does it matter that Jesus is dedicated to God at the temple, that his parents are faithful Jews, they do all that the law asks them to do? Why? Because it shows that Jesus is someone who from the very beginning perfectly obeys Israel's God. Now, you hear all the time, no one's perfect, right? What Luke is saying to us is, yeah, except for one, right? There is this one who is perfect. And it's Jesus. At the very beginning of his life, he's fulfilling the law. And his parents are faithful Jews who offer to God all that he requires of them. And so, in other words, Jesus isn't a rebel who throws off the law, but rather he is the one who comes to fulfill it, to bring it to its rightful conclusion, who is even, in fact, the very goal of the law. Okay, so why are we talking about the law to a bunch of Gentiles? Great question. I'm really glad you asked. Um, here's why. There's an implication for our life, right? As Christians, we're no longer responsible to keep the laws surrounding the temple because someone greater than the temple has come. In fact, Christians aren't even, we're not under the Mosaic law. Now, there's plenty of things in the Mosaic law that are for us because they're part of, they point to something bigger than the law, right? Like loving your neighbor as yourself, right? Jesus comes around and repeats that one because he says it's kind of important. Right? The law is fulfilled in this. Right? We keep Abraham, right, which is loyalty to God, trust in him, even when it doesn't make sense. We keep the way of God by living righteous and just lives. We look for the provision of the Messiah. We do Abrahamic things, but we don't have to do all of Moses. And so the, the issue here is that Mary and Joseph provide an example for us to follow by being people who fulfill all the responsibilities God confers on them. 
So what's the implication for us? Look, do we take worshiping and obeying the living God seriously? See, Joseph and Mary bring to God all that he requires of them. And I think that's a really remarkable thing. They bring everything he requires of them under the law. What do we bring to God for those who are not under the law? What does he require of us? I'll point you to two places that should give us a start. First of all, Matthew chapter 22. Let's throw that up on the screen. Uh, And he said to them, this is Jesus, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments, the whole law and prophets uh, depend... I'm sorry, on these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. Okay, this is, in other words, what does God require of us? Our hearts, our affections, our love, our loyalty, allegiance. And by the way, love in the Bible is different than love in America. Because love in America has to do with attraction, right? It's how I feel in the moment. But how does love work in the Bible? Start, it's an action, isn't it? It's, it's an action. So the question is, how do I act out love for God? Paul says in Romans 12 that we're to present our whole bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God as our spiritual act of worship. So this is like when instead of doing the comfortable thing, I go and I serve somebody else's need, right? That's presenting my body... Right? As a living sacrifice. We uh, went to Seattle to go visit my folks this uh, for Christmas, and it was great. And we got back yesterday, and when you have three kids under five, or five and under, um, a three-hour car drive takes about five hours, right? And so you're stopping all the time, people are going to the bathroom, and it's like, whatever. And so how do you think my wife is feeling after a five-hour, three-hour drive from Seattle, right? We get home and then there's this phone call from our neighbor who needs to go and get her medications, her prescriptions. She's like, she's an elderly lady and we kind of been like helping her for a while and what's the last thing my wife wants to do? Like get up off the couch and drive somebody to the store, right? Because she's been doing that now for the last five hours. And so what does it mean to be a living sacrifice in that moment? To present yourself to God. Right? What do you do? You get up off the couch and you go and you do justice and righteousness, right? And you help the person who can't help themselves. And, okay, so you get what I'm saying. All right, what do we do? We're called to present our whole bodies, our whole lives, our whole person. Think about this for a second. Who's God? He is transcendent, right? So he, like, contains space. He, like, knows the furthest limits of the universe. And yet he's imminent. He's close. He's intimate. So he knows every little molecule and subatomic particle going on, right? And it's always going on. It's movement. It's not static. He gets all of that. Is this the God then who deserves just our mental ascent? Or a few actions here and there? Or a couple of ecstatic emotions? No, he's the God who deserves our thinking and our feeling and our doing, our whole person. So what does God require of us? Us! Right? At our core. And so we are to be like Mary and Joseph and be people who give to God all that he asks for. I love this. Jesus does not provide an excuse from an ethical life. He's actually the door into one and the model for living it. Let me say that again. Jesus doesn't excuse us from living an ethical life. He's the door into one and the model for living it. And Mary and Joseph remind us of this. Um, We know we're headed in the wrong direction if we're asking the question, what is the bare minimum I have to do to get out of danger with God, right? Like, what's the, what's like the, the, like, least amount of effort I have to get, right, in order to avoid danger, right? That's, that's not a good question, right? Because we're really at that point saying salvation's all about faith and involves zero works at all, right? God says, no, I save you. By grace, so that you can do the good works that I've created you to do. Uh, Or we're also heading in the wrong direction when we say, what's the maximum extra credit I can do to get God's favor, right? Like, what do I have to do to get God to notice me and owe me? You see, one question seeks to be lawless, the other seeks to be legalistic. 
But instead, we recognize that God in Christ has called us to a new life, to live with new desires, than a regenerate life to do his will in partnership with him. And so the question then becomes, what would it actually look like if Jesus were living my life? Mary and Joseph show us this example of presenting their whole selves to God. The second element here in this journey to the temple tells us about the family Jesus comes from. And it's described in verse 24. Read this with me. They went to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. So not only do they do all the law, right? they, they, they do all that God has asked them to do, but more than that, they offer this sacrifice of turtle doves or pigeons, right? And this actually has an Old Testament background to it. Leviticus chapter 12, the part that told us what the right was for women who, uh, who were going to go do purification in the temple, tells us this. Um, if she cannot afford a lamb, then she t- shall take two turtle doves and two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. What kind of person offers turtle doves or pigeons at the temple for cleansing? A poor person. A poor person, right? People who can't afford a lamb. People who are poor. And poor, let's just like call this out for what it is here. Their poor is a lot poorer than our version of poor, right? Because even here in America, poor still has tons of resources around, right? You think about the majority world lives, I think, off of an average of like $2 or less per day. So 365 days a year, double that, a little bit over $700 a year, maybe at most, for the most of the world. And if you think you're poor, take $700 or so and start adding it until you get to what you make. Right? So maybe you make in a month what the average person makes in a year. Maybe you make three, four, five times a month what the average person makes in the world in a year. Are we poor? No, like we're doing okay, aren't we? So we're often deceived into thinking that, boy, we're really poor. But in fact, on a grand scale, American poverty, though at points very, very poor, still doesn't even quite touch on the surface of the kind of family Jesus comes from. Okay, what does this have to say about Christ? That, that he comes from a poor family, they can't afford a lamb, they offer the poor person's sacrifice at the temple, and that tells us that this, is, this means Jesus came from heaven to earth, but beyond that, he came from heaven to poverty. See, very few people can relate to wealth, and God comes to relate to us, and he doesn't do so from the standpoint of privilege, from the standpoint of wealth. He does so from the standpoint and the posture of poverty. Isn't that remarkable? That this is how God enters the world. God takes on humanity to identify with us, yes, but even more so, he takes on poverty to identify with the poor. This is who God is. We recognize God when we see Jesus, and this is how he approaches. With a family that can't afford a lamb, they do the poor sacrifice. And guess what? The church that is called to resemble its Savior is also always meant to identify with the poor. Why? Because its head, Christ, has already done so. And we're to follow. So how? How do we join him? How do we, how do we join him in, in his posture of identifying with the poor? Let me suggest to you today a couple things, because I don't have all the answers. Whoa, big surprise, right? Um, I don't think we do it from a standpoint of power over, power over, right? And so a power over posture says, I'm here, I can help you, we'll fix it. But I think the way Christ comes, comes in a presence with posture that says, I'm with you, and we can be family. This is relational. It identifies. The first one comes to fix, the second one comes to identify and do a work of transformation from within. So we can just throw money at people, but it's another thing to bring ourselves to people. Do you understand the difference? 
This is what the incarnation teaches us. That God identifies with poverty, but goes beyond just throwing a solution at it. He enters into it and stands with people. I I think this is something that we have to sit with. Like, we can't just solve that, but we need to sit in it. Immediately, we want to just start making solutions so that we can feel better. But at the end of the day, I think we need to sit with a text like this. It reminds us that Jesus entered the, the world in poverty so that we can fully grasp what it means to be the church, to share God's concern for the underprivileged and the ones that the world deems worthless. See, Luke picks this theme up from the Old Testament and he carries it on through Acts and then he leaves it for the church to work out in our own lives. And what happens when you pair the ethical implications of honoring God with our whole selves and then God's concern for the poor? What what happens when you put those two things together? You get a church that stewards its resources and its, its relationships very different than the world. See, the world teaches us the, uh, the posture of upward mobility and inward focus. Right? Upward mobility and status and accumulation and inward focus and what drives us. But the incarnation of Christ, his coming, his coming from a poor, pious family, teaches us a posture of downward mobility and outward focus. Do you see the difference? Downward mobility says, I want, to, I want to identify with people who don't have what I have, not just in material things, but in terms of relationships and in terms of health and well-being. I want to be outward focused because that's what the kingdom does. And if we are to be Jesus people in 2014, we also need to be Mary and Joseph people and how we offer faithful lives to God, all that he requires, and also faithfully living in solidarity with the powerless. What would it look like for us to take their example, this example from Luke chapter 2, seriously? But hey, the adventure does not stop there. It continues in the temple. Let's look at the example of Simeon next. Verse 25. Read along with me. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him, And as it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. We'll stop there and and explore that for a second. So, the family continues through the temple. They want to do their dedication thing with Jesus, and they run into a guy named Simeon. And Simeon's an interesting character. We don't know a lot about Simeon. Like, I don't know if he's old, but he's, like, maybe he's expecting to die. I don't know, but there's something here where he's... He, he has this word from the Lord that he's going to see the Messiah before he dies. We don't know what he did, but we know his spiritual, conviction, or his spiritual condition, which is this. He is righteous and devout. And maybe most significant about Simeon is that he has a hope. He has a very particular hope that he is looking forward to the consolation of Israel. This is uh, actually what a lot of our Christmas carols are kind of about, right? We, we look forward to the consolation of Israel. What is the consolation of Israel about? It's an idea that comes out of the Old Testament prophetic literature, namely at places like Isaiah. And consolation or comfort was this promise that God had made his people while they were in exile. And by the way, they got into exile through pretty much doing two things persistently for lots and lots of years. They were idolatrous, so they set up other gods, they worshipped other gods. We do that too, don't we? I mean, we don't call it that, but we order our lives according to things that aren't God. And they were also perpetuating injustice. I would suggest to you that we also participate in systems that perpetuate injustice. And so, anyways, we can relate, right? So God is going to save them from heaps of punishment for their idolatry and injustice with this consolation and this comfort. And then, and it kind of kicks off in Isaiah chapter 7. I'll just read a couple of these verses to you. Did I say seven? I meant 40. Those are totally the same. All right, so (laughs) Isaiah 1 through 39 kind of forms the first part of Isaiah. It's like first Isaiah is what they say. And so it's this idea of kind of this coming exile for the people. In chapter 40 through 66, it's kind of the second part of Isaiah. And it's looking forward to the time of God's salvation. It kicks off with this word. Comfort, comfort, 
My people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from Yahweh's hands double for all her sins. And then you fast forward to chapter 49, and the context describes the coming of this Messiah, the servant of Yahweh, who will bring salvation. It says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Bring forth, O mountains, into singing. For God, or sorry, the Lord has comforted his people, and he will have compassion on his afflicted. Isaiah 51.3, Yahweh comforts Zion. He comforts all the waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Wow. Isaiah 57.18, speaking of the re- his rebellious people Israel, I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore him, comfort to him and his mourners. And then Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, the words describing the coming Messiah, the servant and his mission. These words will come later in Luke chapter 4 as Jesus' manifesto. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Sound familiar? And sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So Isaiah has this really killer message, doesn't he? You're in exile. Things aren't the way they ought to be. You're suffering and there's a coming comfort when I send my servant, the Savior. The rabbis, even during the time leading up to Christ, would refer to the Isaiah's Messiah figure as Menachem, which means, <coughs> excuse me, no, I'm sorry, it means, I got one person to laugh at that, man. All right, so Menachem means comforter, right? So the Messiah in the rabbi's minds leading up to Jesus was seen as the one who would bring Israel's consolation. See, comfort and salvation work together. Anybody actually want a quick, interesting theological tidbit? All right, sure. That was the right answer. Thank you. I'm glad you didn't say no. Uh, Luke presents Jesus, the Messiah, as the comforter, right? So this is pretty interesting. All throughout kind of Luke and Acts, this idea of the Messiah is the one who brings the consolation, the comfort of Israel. But John brings a different character. Who brings comfort in John's gospel? The Holy Spirit. Chapters 14 through 16 is is where we meet the paraclete, the helper, the comforter. This tells us something very interesting about God. It tells us that God, in his work of saving, does so as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not just Jesus who does saving work. In fact, it's all three members of the Trinity working together as a team from all eternity. Father, Son, and Spirit accomplish salvation for us and bring Healing and restoration. Pretty interesting. So, so what is it that Simeon does that's an example for us? See, Simeon shows us what righteous and devout people do. Righteous and devout people, beyond doing just righteousness and justice, look for God's provision of the Messiah as their desired comfort. Okay? They look to the coming Messiah as their comfort. That's what righteous and devout people do, and it actually causes them to be righteous and devout people because they're looking forward to God's act of salvation through the Messiah. In John 6, 29, uh, the people are asking Jesus a very important question. They say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them this, this is the work of God, to believe in the one he sent. And to believe in the one he sent is not just intellectual assent that says, I agree, Jesus is somebody great. But it's to believe, to trust, and to order my life accordingly that Jesus is Lord. Luke goes on and he says this, Simeon came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said... Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. 
Luke tells us, again, another great example here about Simeon. He comes in the spirit, it says, into the temple uh, to, to go meet and see Jesus. This tells us something about the life God longs for us to have. See, it's always good to listen to the Spirit, right? It's so important. that you, See, you can't see what God wants you to see unless you are attending to and listening to the voice of His Spirit. You cannot perceive the things God wants you to perceive in your life unless you're listening to His Spirit. I think we probably need to have a whole sermon series on what does the Spirit sound like, right? Let me tell you this. It won't disagree with Scripture. It'll amplify it. And so yesterday, when my wife's on the couch and she's like, I need to go help out Pat, how did she know it was the Spirit and not a burrito? Because the Spirit was prompting her to do the things that God does. He does righteousness. He does justice. He cares about the widow and the orphan. And that's who's down the street. And so it's very easy. Oh, that's the Spirit. Okay. I should do that. And the result was joyful partnership with God, actually. It was uncomfortable, and it was more tiring, but it was good. So, we listen to the Spirit. If we want to see what God wants us to see, we have to be responsive to His Spirit. I often think about the joys I experience when I do listen to the Spirit, and I think, boy, what joys have I missed out on because I said, ah, not right now, God. Right? I mean, think about that. We can't see what God wants us to see unless we actually... Cooperate. We want the blessings of God, don't we? We're like, oh, I want the great experiences of God. I want to see what he wants me to see, but I don't want to have to do the effort and work of obedience. <laughs> Simeon pulls both of those off, doesn't he? See, he, he could have not encountered the Messiah that morning, but he chose to go in the Spirit into the temple, and who does he intersect? He intersects Christ himself. And by the way, I just want to say this. This is why we do community groups here, so that we can... Listen to the Spirit in community. And we do that by, we look at the Word and we want to respond to it. But we encourage each other in living lives of response to God's Spirit so we can share the burden of caring for the hurting together so that we can let each other in on what God's doing in our lives and encourage each other forward. In fact, you can sign up for community groups next week because we're going to launch those in January. I didn't mean to make that as smarmy as it seemed, but... I'm pretty, pretty excited about community groups because this is where we live out the life of the Spirit in the context of community. So the Spirit leads Simeon into the temple. He intersects Jesus. And then Simeon has these, this hymn just kind of erupt in his heart and he, he says, my eyes have seen salvation, right? He's a first-hand witness to what God has done by sending Jesus more about that in a second. And he says, now your servant can depart in peace. I love that. It really means, I can die now. <laughs> I'm good. Right? That, like, that's what that means when you say, like, now your servant can depart in peace. Like, he doesn't mean, like, I can leave the temple now. It's like, I'm, I, could, I could go right now. I'd go in peace. Right? I used to have this teacher that would, like if some student said something really insightful, he'd be like, oh, let's end in prayer. And we'd all be like, really, can we? Can we get out of class now? And he, all he meant was like, that was really great. We could end things right now. And then he'd continue teaching. So I'm going to continue to do that right now. Let's keep going. Um, all right, so he says, I can, I can go in peace. You've consoled Israel with salvation. I've seen your peace, forgiveness of sins, the overthrow of powers. God has come to rule his people. God's kept his word. And I think we're just exceptional at creating strategies to experience peace in our life on our own. Right? Um, how many of them really work in, in terms of creating a sense of wholeness and well-being at the core of our relationships with God, self, and others? Like not very many of them. So what is it that, that Simeon actually says allows him to see the end of his life in peace? Is it what he's accumulated? No. Is it what he's achieved? Is it how his peers are talking about him? Like, clearly that's it, right? How many people liked his Instagram or Facebook comment? Right? No. Is it, is it the conflicts that he's been able to avoid? No. What is it? He's seen the Lord, right? He's seen God do a work of rescue, that God's kept his word. And we're not going to have peace 
until we recognize that it comes in and through Jesus and what he's done. See, the degree of peace in our lives is relative to the degree that we see God at work through Jesus as the definitive and crucial act that achieves our peace and as we participate in his mission. You see, this is huge. A lot of us in life see that life still isn't peaceful, that there is much that is not peace around us and even in us. And that's true. But when we see Jesus and as God's salvation, when we look at what he's done, it tells us that God's good to keep his word. That what he's done there means that he will finish what he's started. That he will finally put the world to rights and answer every injustice. And so there's this finality to the work of God in creating peace for us because it is what God has done to make peace by sending His Son and Spirit. But also there's hope because it has to do with what God will do to set the world to rights. But here's the deal. Simeon gets that it's not just peace for him. It's not just this interior peace that he gets alone. But it's peace for everyone that God offers through his salvation in Jesus. See, Simeon says that God has prepared his salvation before all people to be a light that, he says, will be revelation to the Gentiles, as in God is showing himself, sharing truth with the nations, and glory for Israel. Jesus is God's glory because he draws nations to the salvation that comes out of Israel. And this, Simeon helps us see that Jesus, in particular, is how God saves and rescues the world but it is for the world and not just for Israel. So here's the question then, the point of relevance for us, which is, do we share in Simeon's excitement? Do we share in his joy? Do we feel like we also are eyewitnesses of salvation, where we can say, I've seen with my own eyes who God is and what he's done? Because look, I used to know addiction, but now I know freedom because of the cross. I used to know what it was to be hateful, but now I know forgiveness because of Jesus. I knew darkness, now I know light because I've experienced God's rescue and I've seen it in the community that I'm a part of. But here's the deal. There's a subtle temptation to differ from Simeon, to kind of go our own way. And There's two temptations I want to highlight here. One temptation I think applies to the the more or less liberal person who wants to say that God, if he exists at all, rescues us through Jesus and other ways. See, the temptation is to broaden the source of God's rescue. And then there's another temptation, equally dangerous for the more conservative person, I think, who says that God rescues people just like me. And it is essentially a temptation to narrow the recipients of God's rescue. Do you see how this works? See, on one hand, there's a temptation to say, surely there's more ways to get in on peace other than Jesus. And essentially it's relativistic. But the other temptation says, surely there's less types of people who can get in on God's peace. And it's a temptation that's moralistic. Do you see how poisonous both of these are? But Simeon says, I've seen salvation because I've seen Jesus, and it's a particular salvation, but it's light for the Gentiles and glory for Israel. It's not just people like me, it's people who are very, very different from me. See, the gospel reverses these temptations and says the source is narrow. Jesus says that there's a narrow door. It's himself. But the scope is broad. It's good news for all the people, the angel said last week. You remember that? So we have to keep this tension. Salvation is found in no one else, but salvation is for anyone who will respond to grace. So we have to keep that tension. We want to be people who are gospel people, not moralistic, not relativistic. And we want to be like Simeon when we grasp God's grace and we get the fact that there's this finality and centrality to Christ's work, but there's also a universality to God's invitation to know him and be a part of his spirit-empowered community. Amen? So in short, Simeon is a great example to us because he's a joyful, faithful person who says, look, I recognize the significance of Jesus and I embrace him and I get that the result of knowing him is peace and I get that the scope of his salvation is for everyone. On the other hand, Simeon knows that the source of salvation won't be easy for everyone to embrace. And he says this in verse 34. 
Simeon blessed them, that is Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce, your, pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many or many hearts may be revealed. See, Simeon concludes his time with Jesus' family with this kind of ominous note. Like, not everything with Jesus is going to be rosy, nor is it going to be so for Israel. And I think sometimes we, like, are invited to know Jesus and the message is, everything's going to be awesome for you from here on out. Like, come know Jesus and it's going to be great. He's going to do everything that you've ever wanted him to do. All your wildest dreams are going to come true. And that was Pedro running for president, not Jesus, right? And so we have to be careful there. Like Napoleon Dynamite reference caught that crowd right there. Okay, so I know where you sit. Uh, Here's the deal. When we meet and embrace Jesus, it's not all rosy, is it? Because he does a very gnarly work in the dark places of our hearts. And there's resistance in our flesh and in the world and from the devil. We have to pay attention to that. And so he gets that things aren't going to be all great. And so this phrase, fall and rising of many in Israel, is actually this allusion to Isaiah chapter 8, where God talks about placing a stone in Israel that will be a stumbling block, that people will trip up over this stone in the way. But in chapter 28 of Isaiah, he mentions the stone again, but this time and now it's a cornerstone, which is the foundation of a building, and you set everything on it and from it. And everyone, Isaiah says, who trusts in the cornerstone will not be disappointed. And so this stone is like a fall, falling stone and a rising stone. What Simeon is saying here is that God has sent Jesus to reveal the real thoughts of and intentions of people's hearts. And the results are actually going to be divisive. See, those who reject him will fall. But those who, like Simeon, who rejoice at his coming will rise. Either way, the hearts of those who reject God will be seen in their response to Jesus. And the hearts of people who truly love God will be revealed in their embrace of Jesus. And the reason Jesus will be so divisive is that he'll reveal the true divisive nature of the human heart. But at the same time, he'll unite everyone who responds to God's grace. So here's the question for you this morning. Where do you stand with God? I'll tell you how you know. How do you respond to Jesus? How do you respond to him? Do you trust him? You're a rising person at this point. Do you reject him? There's a warning of a fall. But here's the great news. You can change your response because no one else can for you. You alone can change your response to Jesus. I hope, like Simeon, it will be one of faith and trust that says, I want to be in with Jesus the Messiah and his mission and what he's about. But even Mary, Simeon says, will experience something like a sword piercing her heart. That's a pretty gnarly figure of speech, isn't it? You're going to experience something like a sword going through your heart. What's that about? It's anticipating the pain that Mary will feel from Jesus' ministry. Most likely foreshadowing the cross where Jesus will give his life for the redemption of the world. See, Simeon shows us what it means to embrace Jesus as Savior. On one hand, it says, I recognize him as the one who comes to deliver his people in victory and power. And on the other hand, he is also the suffering servant who is rejected by his people And Simeon points us forward to the price that Jesus will actually pay for the salvation he offers. See, Mary and Joseph couldn't afford to bring a lamb, but instead, ironically, they brought Jesus, who in fact is the lamb. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist says in John chapter 1. See, he's the lamb who would be a sacrifice that would atone for sin to make it right to cleanse people and set them free, both from the penalty of sin and from the bondage it creates. And Jesus would be the one rejected so you and I might be accepted. That he'd be pierced for the sins of the world so that we could be healed. And Simeon knows that this rejection of Jesus will ultimately mean peace. For all who refuse to stumble over him, but instead trust in him for forgiveness and redemption. Are you like Simeon today? 
And as you head into the new year, you know the cost of grace, that it wasn't cheap. You know the source of real and lasting rescue and the scope of God's love for all. And the price as well, not just for Jesus, but also for those who follow him and join him in his mission. And it will also mean hardship. Finally, we come to the last example, Anna. Now, she is quite the lady. Uh, let's read about her. Verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So Anna, great lady, right? Like, it says she didn't leave the temple. She was, like, there all the time. It doesn't actually, like, literally mean that she never left to go get, like, a shawarma sandwich. But, the like, she was there a lot, right? She was there soaking in the presence of God. And her deal was she was there to worship and serve and pray at the temple. And what Luke is doing here is he's showing that both male and female, the pious and the prophet, both testify to the identity of Jesus. He started with the street people, the shepherds out in Bethlehem, and now he moves to the center of Jewish life, the city. And here you have witnesses from Simeon and Anna that this is God's salvation, both Praise Jesus as the one who's coming into the world to save it. And Jesus is, in fact, the one who fulfills the hopes and expectations of Israel. But I think the more obvious thing here that Anna shows us as an example is that she is a woman who is patient and persistent in her devotion to God. As you think about this next year, are we going to be Anna-like people who... We seek to spend as much time in the presence of God as we can. Because look what happens in Anna's life. She's there soaking in the presence of God, and as she comes out, what is she doing? She's spilling it out, right? She's praising God, thanking Him, and sharing about Jesus, who is the redemption of Jerusalem. We're leaky people. You want to spill out joy? You want to spill out the the presence of God in your life to others. That's what God calls you to do, by the way. It's going to involve soaking up in his presence. Are you going to be someone this year who prioritizes time around who God is and knowing him? I hope so, because that means we'll be a church that's instead of leaking, is spilling. And that, there's a big difference, right? One ends up taking a lot from people. The other ends up giving a lot to them. Let's be that kind of church, an Anna kind of church. And then, here's the other thing about Anna. This is maybe the most obvious example of all that I love. How old is she? She's an old lady. Right? Sorry. Sorry, if you're like 84 and over, you know this by now. Right? So, um, she's 84. And and Luke shares this story. And I think one of the cool things about this story is it tells us that I think Anna may have made her biggest kingdom contribution in her life at like 84. Okay? That's, That's like a big deal. That means that you are never too young or too old to make an impact for God's kingdom. What's the core factor, though, and how you make an impact for God's kingdom, no matter what your age is. It's in what Anna, or what Anna does. Look at what she does. She is drawing attention to the work of God in her midst and constantly pointing the way towards Jesus to those that are in her life. What's it going to take, if you're not 84 yet, what's it going to take to get to 84 and be that kind of person? Who is constantly pointing out the redemptive work of God in your midst and pointing people to Jesus. Don't you want to be that kind of 84-year-old? We need you to be that kind of... And if you're 84 and older, get on it! Because we need you to be somebody who isn't here to complain, but is here to point us to Jesus. We need your help. Show us the redemptive work of God in our midst and point us to Jesus and you will be a blessing and you will make kingdom impact no matter how old you are because guess what? You're not done until God takes you 
home. Okay? I notice that there is some gray hair in this church. So, I think this applies to us. We are not done, ever, as long as the Spirit indwells us and empowers us and gifts us for ministry. Get in the game. Be a Jesus pointer to person. Awful sentence. Sorry for that. Okay. Let's um, end this. Verse 39. And when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town in Nazareth. And the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Next week, Pastor Dave is going to tell us more about Jesus growing up into maturity. But this week, I just want to point once again to the reality that God has given favor to his son, Jesus. And that same favor to his son, Jesus, also is for all who receive him. See, Jesus didn't just carry the favor of God. He has carried the curse of God at the cross. He's carried the burden of sin and guilt so that we might become the favorite of God in him. And we celebrate that at the table. As we move into a time of communion, we celebrate the favor of God for us through the one who bore the curse of God in him. That Jesus Christ laid his body down and shed his blood to purchase our life. So that we might know the favor of God in and through Jesus. So I want to encourage you this morning as you come, as you end 2013 and head into the new year, let's ponder what it means to dwell in God's favor in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for these wonderful, shining examples that help lead us the way into this next year as people who trust you, respond to you, partner with you and make a difference alongside you for the sake of your kingdom. Ask, Lord, that you would meet us here at your table, that we'd know your presence as we take in the bread and the cup and celebrate once again your life and death and resurrection Lord, we love you and we thank you and pray that this moment would be a time we just again feel your, your presence with us. In Christ's name, amen.